Dan says no deal to Com Games blowout. Time to fund public schools. No campaign avoids truth. And good news about plastics. This is The Week on Wednesday. Hello and welcome to The Week on Wednesday. I am your co-host Ben Davison and joining me as always is the great, the glorious, the best-selling author of QAnon, <laughs> A Short and Shocking History of Internet Conspiracy Cults and the soon-to-be-appearing at the Floating Lands Festival on Saturday. In Noosa. My wife, your friend, Van Batum. How are you, Van? Noosa. So excited. Really looking forward to it. So Floating Land is this weekend and Saturday I'm doing my talk. Ben will be there. He won't be on stage, but he'll be around and I will be talking about QAnon and on. And for those of you who are like, oh, she stop talking about these cookers. No, not until they've all gone. But also I have some other projects that are coming up soon that I look forward to telling you about. So Ben will change his little spiel. But until yeah. then... It's QAnon and on. It's QAnon and on, which you should read. And can I just say a big shout out to the listener who wrote to us this week uh, sharing their experience uh, with a family member who has uh, been captured by QAnon uh, and it was really touching uh, what they wrote to us. I won't go into the detail uh, because it was a uh, direct message, but I will just say that you know, hearing the stories about how Van's book and how the podcast is helping people really does make it feel like what we're doing is worthwhile. We really appreciate that. We know people join their union because of the podcast. We know people, uh, you know, get into queuing on and on and have conversations with family members in different ways than maybe they would have otherwise. So hopefully, we can continue to help people in that way. Another uh, listener got in contact uh, around aged care workers, Van. Mm. So this week, aged care workers in Australia will start to see uh, the benefits of uh, the pay increase, the uh, the fifteen percent pay increase that's been funded uh, by the Anthony Albanese government after many years of campaigning by the United Workers Union, the Health Services Union, and the Australian Nursing and Midwifery Federation, uh, in particular those three unions, with the support, of course, of the ACTU and the various peak bodies around the country. The uh, listener wrote to me to say that they've been uh, talking with workers in the sector who are going to see their Base rate of pay go from $24.47 an hour to $29.76. And, quote, this is a game changer for aged care workers, most of whom are women, many in their 50s and 60s, who perform a vital role in our society and have been downtrodden for so long. There's still a way to go, as United Workers Union, Health Services Union and ANMF are still fighting for the extra 10%. Uh, and a priority has to be getting an increase for support workers, cleaners, kitchen staff, laundry staff, admin, and maintenance officers who are missing out until more pressure can be brought to bear on the Fair Work Commission. But we've only gotten this far because aged care workers joined their union, got active, took industrial action where needed, and helped toss out Morrison and demanded better pay and better conditions. That is why every episode we say, Join your union. You really should. 
You can go to australianunions.org.au slash wow. You can join online while you listen to this podcast because being a member of your union fundamentally changes your working conditions. It changes your working life and it improves it. Lots of commentary this week about the Matildas, as an example, mm-hmm. who themselves unionised. They went from, get this van, I didn't realise this, but they went from having to wash their own kits, having to sew their own um, coat of arms onto their own jerseys uh, and getting paid less than minimum wage to now getting pay parity with the Socceroos. Of course, the Matildas are higher ranked than the Socceroos. <laughs> in global standings. So it is phenomenal what you can do when you stand together, whether you're in aged care or on the global sporting stage. An actor, a screenwriter, and obviously my solidarity is with the members of the WGA East and West and SAG-AFTRA in the United States, the the TV writers and film writers who are um, and actors who are on strike. Really amazing picket lines in the United States of America, Mark Ruffalo, uh, Adam Conover, who I absolutely adore, like these, um, the amazing Fran Drescher, who's the yeah. president, the nanny named Fran, the comrade named Fran, <laughs> and a shout out to our buddy Nordacious, the graphic designer, who's done the most wonderful comrade named Fran T-shirt available mm-hmm. on his website, free plug Nordacious, and it, you know the incredible solidarity of those picket lines, showing people that unions are for everyone. And that it's united action that actually leads to greater industrial outcomes because they're facing the threat of AI in the entertainment industry, automating their jobs, removing their rights. As something came out the other, and while the streamers are making mm. a fortune, mm. an absolute fortune, something came out the other day about how one of the things the streamers want to do is they want to essentially buy your image. So if you do one day of work as an actor, they will own your image forever and they can reuse and AI animate your image with you getting no money, no residuals forever. Yeah, and they can pay as little as $150 for that. That's the that's what the I've heard as well. So that is, you know, the idea that, the Disney Corporation that pays its CEO $27 million or something like that a year is going to pay somebody $150 and then use their image forever in whatever movies or TV shows that Disney might choose to make is just... I mean, it's just greed. It's greed gone wild is what it is. Yeah, it's absolutely sickening. And it's this idea that creative people are expendable to creative products, and it's like, yeah, I don't, I not, don't think that's a thing. Not in this house. Not in this house. No. Not ben in this loves house. being a writer's husband. Can I just say he's so into it? He particularly loves that Ben. Ben, wake up, wake up! I've been writing all night. Read this scene. Breakdown. Ben. Yeah, it's. Uh, <laughs> needless to say, my view is very clear that uh, professional uh, writers and artists don't get paid uh, appropriately. Uh, ben, can I just ask? <laughs> Sure. Did you did you think that was different before? Did you think did you have a different image of what professional creative life was like before we were together? Uh, I think I think a lot of people do. I I did. I think a lot of people think that you know you've got a you've got a best selling book, multiple time best selling book. You've got a co- column in the Guardian. You've appeared on the ABC uh, numerous times. You've appeared on commercial television as well. I think people make assumptions that that means that you get thousands and thousands of dollars. And I think when people see 
uh, actors appear in, you know, NCIS or these big commercial productions, they assume that that's a $10,000 a day kind of gig. Um, and the reality is just really different. Like that's not, it's nowhere near that. Like it's so far beyond that, like below that, you know, and the, the ABC doesn't pay people to be on panels, you know, like there's no, um, in Australia, you can be really well known and still be making minimum wage or less uh, in in artistic practice. I think most people assume that you know if somebody is well known in Australia, they have the financial rewards to go with that, and that's just not how artistic practice works. And even in the US, you know, where you've got like I think it's 87% or something or 75% of working actors don't make enough to qualify for health insurance uh, because they're, they're paid so little. Even if they appear, you know, in multiple shows over the course of a year, I saw one uh, actor who said, you know, they're on a billboard, uh, the biggest billboard in in Los Angeles. Yeah, Luke Cook. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, he got paid like fifteen hundred dollars for the the day that he appeared on the actual TV show, but nothing for the billboard and no ongoing revenue stream. Like, that's when you think about that. In those contexts, it's, yeah, it's really, it, it's quite stark. It's quite uh, uh, world-shaking, I think, you know, because we think about Hollywood and we think about the glamour and we think about the glitz and the Hollywood mansions and the Hollywood hills and, you know, you you, you think about the, you know, J.K. Rowling being a billionaire and you, you think that if you know somebody's name, they must have all this money that accompanies success. And it's just not like that. It's really not. It's interesting because particularly with the actors, like even and writers, really successful ones, and some of my friends have become really successful mm. and the the nature of their lives completely changes. And I know that some people would think that, oh, Lord, all this money, and but they work all the time because mm. there comes a point where the work dries up mm. where you know you stop tr- like you stop being trendy or cool or it's that whole get me who is Ricardo Montalban get me Ricardo Montalban I want a younger Ricardo Montalban who is Ricardo Montalban like that's the life of an actor and you've really got to make hay while the sun shines because the other thing is you become too famous to leave the house and it's like oh they're on these amazing salaries and it's like and they have to employ like agents managers finance people hairstylists chefs like the demands on your body to be a hollywood level actor and the shape that you've got to stay mm. in and how you've got to look and plastic surgery is of course part of that for a lot of people and i mean your overheads are really quite high and when you reach a level of fame that's it like your house has to be where you entertain where you socialize because you know the costs of going out and security and mm. warding off psychos and the, like it's hard like it's hard to be famous and frankly you know the kind of work that you have to do to stay in that zone and and make it work mm. requires an enormous amount of investment so my full solidarity with the actors and writers who are on strike and anyone who takes industrial action yeah. in their own interest. I mean, that's how you find the balance of what is appropriate remuneration for the work that you actually do is by organising and mm. putting a collective position and going, this is what I'm worth. This is what we're worth. This is what our contribution is worth. And this is what your job
job relies on to exist. And I want to give a shout out to the United Workers Union workers at API, who of course uh, continue to take industrial action uh, around uh, supplying Woolworths, uh, and uh, AMW, Australian Manufacturing Workers Union workers, who are taking industrial action around uh, Peter's ice cream. Uh, you know, like it really does. There is a union for everyone and standing together with your colleagues, your co-workers, your fellow professionals, your fellow workers is how you get what you deserve. Join your union. Join it while you listen to the rest of this podcast. We're going to get into some of the big news that's happened this week, Dan. Uh, I hate to be overly Victorian-centric, but, of course, Big. It is national news. Uh, it's international news. Well, it's not maybe as big an international story as some in the Australian media might like to think it is because it's not running on the front page of the London Times. It's not running on the front page of the UK edition of The Guardian. But Dan Andrews has cancelled uh, hosting the 2026 Commonwealth Games in Victoria. Uh, he did this. Uh, yesterday, uh, and it was after an assessment that has come through saying it was going to cost seven up to $7 billion to host the Commonwealth Games in Victoria. 12 days, you know, lots of sporting events. Uh, you know, I'm sure we're all going to miss seeing Kenya versus Burma in the men's hockey, but these are... Uh, I'm not sure Burma's even still included in the Commonwealth Games, probably not given the junta. Yeah, given the dictatorship, I think it's a bit tricky. It's probably been suspended. Uh, That's probably a good thing. But, look, the reality is I know there will be some people who are disappointed by this decision. You know, there are athletes who are obviously disappointed who are preparing for 2026. Uh, The media seems bizarrely disappointed. All I can think there is... You will find other corporate hospitality that you can pretend is a new story. Don't worry, folks. I'm sure there will be something else you can attend. But look, you know, this was something that was supposed to cost about $2.6 billion, is now going to cost $7 billion, uh, was going to require huge amounts of construction in Ballarat, Bendigo, Shepparton, Geelong, uh, and quite frankly, from my perspective, and I don't know how you feel about this, Van, but from my perspective, the the value of the Commonwealth Games to Victoria was the legacy. It was it was the legacy piece. It was the athlete villages being turned into affordable housing. It was the facilities being turned over to the community for grassroots sport. It was the upgrades to stations that would allow better transportation connections uh, and quicker commutes and, and more accessibility. Like, for example, the Ballarat train station was due to get a, a lift, an elevator, so that people could go from one platform to another. They're still going to get that. This is the thing that I quite like about the announcement is that what Dan Andrews has done is said, look, we've looked at this. We're not, we're not going to not do the bits that we think add value to the lives of Victorians, but what we're not going to do is spend all the money on all the extra security, uh, all of the kind of glitz and glamoury bits that a Commonwealth Games requires. 
when we can actually just spend the $2 billion on having 1,300 affordable homes, a billion-dollar regional housing fund, up that Ballarat Station is going to get its elevator finally. You know, like these are – this is the bit that people want, right? Like people actually want the jobs that come from this. And, in fact, now we can stage this over a period of time to make it more viable as opposed to – in an environment where interest rates are high, so it costs a lot to borrow. Well, this is the thing. I mean, if interest rates were low yeah. and if we had a higher unemployment, Commonwealth Games, great idea. Yeah. Right, great idea in in those particular economic settings for the government to spend money on economic activity and generate economic activity in that way. The neo-Keynesian model. That is the neo-Keynesian model. John Maynard Keynes was very clear, like in a recession or depression, you spend the money and it doesn't even matter what you spend it on. Burying bottles, I think, is one of the (laughs) examples he gave. Just pay people to bury bottles and then when they've buried all the bottles, pay them to dig them up again because it's an economic generator. But we're living in an inflationary period Mm. and this is one of the reasons why costs have blown out. So they took the games on. Nobody else wanted the Games? Can mm. we be very, very mm. clear? Ben let me know today he did a bit of research. Uh, the only country that was not New Zealand, Australia, Canada or Britain to ever host the Commonwealth Games apparently was India and they were allowed to host it once. Yeah. Like the amount of infrastructure required and investment required is beyond most Commonwealth countries because they are recovering from, oh, colonialism, which is how they ended up in the Commonwealth in the first place because of structuralised poverty by an invading, colonising imperial power. And it really is, it's a bit, it is very much a throwback, right? Like the 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 reality is that all of these countries in the Commonwealth uh, to, to some extent or another, are uh, former colonies, right? Like they are. They're part of, and it used to be called the Empire Games. Like let's not sugarcoat this. Uh, and even the head of the Commonwealth Games Committee or organising group, whatever they're called, has acknowledged that, you know, they have to reckon with the history of the Commonwealth in order to be able to move forward. But the idea that somehow or another the Commonwealth Games Uh, this great unifying thing for people around the world, it's just not real. Like, I appreciate, again, I appreciate there are athletes who see this as a great opportunity uh, to to perform their sport at a high level. Not the highest level in most cases, but at a high level. Um, But there are many athletes, many world-class athletes, particularly in track and field, who don't participate in the Commonwealth Games, who are from Commonwealth countries. Uh, who, who in some cases, I think Usain Bolt, he has said he was misquoted, but was quite disparaging of the Commonwealth Games as a as an event in the global calendar. And what we need to do is put this in its proper context. No Australian state has gone, oh, we'll take it on, because nobody wants to spend seven billion dollars on a twelve day sporting event that really is just a showcase of what's left of British athletic talent. Uh, versus Canadian, Australian, uh, and to some degree New Zealand. Like most of the countries that compete in the Commonwealth Games do not have a significant infrastructure to compete in 
all of the different sports. Because that... they are still recovering from the impoverishment of colonialism. I mean, I love sport. You know I yeah, love yeah. sport. Ben loves sport, but he concentrates all his love into one sport, which is playing the black and white round ball. But I am a sport universalist. I inherited this from my parents. I love all sport. If there is sport on TV, I will watch it. Um, ben and I ended up spending many hours watching what is apparently called cornholing in the United States, which I, I presume would have another name in Australia because it was sport and it was on television. I was like, no, no, don't change the channel. And I have loved the Commonwealth Games in my time because it's sport and it's competitive and it has narrative, all the things that I love. But I can't just, I can't justify it. Like in, in in a cost of living crisis where there are priorities for the state government of Victoria because of an economic environment we're in, because they were told by the Reserve Bank that interest rates would stay low and borrowed money mm. in order to insulate the state against the worst economic impacts of the pandemic. And then, of course, the Reserve Bank turned around and raised interest rates 11 times. Like we're in an unusual economic environment that a lot of Australians have never lived through before. Mm, mm. And we now have to look at the reality. What is 12 days going to cost us? Is there going to be enough of a return on an investment well, for us to justify it? And the answer is no. Well, let's talk about the return on investment because the reality is that most major sporting tournaments cost money. They lose money. So Rio lost $2 billion hosting the 2016 Olympics. Rio de Janeiro. Now, Brazil is not a country with a spare $2 billion to throw around. Uh, And the reality is that a lot of countries that host these big sporting tournaments, whether it's the Olympics or the World Cup or even the Commonwealth Games, uh, spend a lot of money that they have to borrow to build facilities that don't get used. Now, the Andrews government's idea was to decentralise, right, to say, well, the legacy of the Commonwealth Games has to be of value to the people of Victoria. And that's why there was going to be events in Ballarat and uh, down in Gippsland and in Geelong and Bendigo and, you know, all around the state. It wasn't a Melbourne Games. It was a Victorian Games because that way they could justify spending $2 billion on all of the infrastructure that was needed. What's been blowing out, of course, is the cost of servicing debt, the shortage of building supplies, the fact that we also have, we actually have a skilled worker shortage in Australia. So there's just, there's just no spare capacity to make these things happen in the time frame that is needed to make them happen. People go, oh, we'll move it to Melbourne. Well, it's still going to cost $4 billion. And then what have you got? You've got, you've either got to move people out of space and build athlete villages or you've got to move people out of space and put athletes in there temporarily and find somewhere else for people to work. It's not like we're in a situation where there's so much empty housing in Melbourne that we can easily accommodate a few thousand athletes for 12 days. It's a it's a very look, you know, Dan Andrews said he's had to make a lot of tough decisions as Premier, but this wasn't one of them. And I can understand that because quite frankly, we've gone through a pandemic. We do have uh, debt. We do have uh, the legacy of poor information provided to the premiers by the Reserve Bank, by the Morrison government at the time. We are trying to navigate a soft landing, a narrow path, whatever you want to call it, that brings down inflation without putting thousands of people into unemployment. We are trying to raise wages. And quite frankly, the thing here that is 
really responsible, really focused. We've talked about this before. The Neokensian model says when times are good, you target your programs. You you actually do what's needed in the places it's needed for the people that it's needed. And what's needed is more social and affordable housing. What's needed is better upgrades to train stations, better transport connections, more efficient, higher productivity. This is what will be the legacy. And clearly, the boffins at Treasury in Melbourne have gone... We, we can't make this work. Well, they've gone... And this is the thing too. The way we can make this work is actually just to do the bit to that To do we that want. without the games. I mean, we can't make the, the games work. I mean, and Andrew's made the point, and I heard Chris Minns echo this as well when somebody's went, I would just have it in Sydney. They were just like, we can't take money from schools and hospitals to pay for Commonwealth games. Yeah. Like, not in the environment we're in where prices have gone up. Prices going up affect government purchasing too. Yeah. Like, you know, they're not immune from the cost of lumber. They're not immune from the cost of steel. Like, infrastructure projects yeah. require spending on material things. And, look, it, it's been really frustrating, I think, for a lot of people to see how some in the media, and I particularly refer here to what I call the billionaire and corporate-owned media, uh, have just used this as another excuse to ramp up their, I think I think you might have called it almost an ideology of hating Dan Andrews. Yeah, which is not an ideology, by the way. An ideology is about ideas and the ideas are, rested, are rooted in values. One of the problems with the modern centre-right is, and I'm just going to sit here and say it, which is very clear in the Liberal Party, in the No campaign, which we'll talk about in the moment, mm. in, the, in what's supposed to be the centre-right media class, is that it has drifted away from what are traditional conservative values, some of which are quite admirable, mm. you know, preserving institutions and sense of honour and duty and personal responsibility. You know, I can I can actually, as a democratic socialist, go, you know, there's value for those mm. propositions in society. But we are now off in the unhinged land where apparently your identity as a conservative is not based in any kind of moral choice to be an upstanding individual but just to pour Buckets of slop on Dan Andrews every day. That's not an ideology. That's not right. That's not based in ideas at all. That's just some weird personal atavism towards a, a person who, quite honestly, and I think the three election victories perhaps indicate this, kind of sums each up each one bigger than the last. Each one bigger than the last kind of sums up the aspirational values of Australian leadership. Like, I think even if you were a centre-right conservative, and this was clearly the case in perhaps the last two or three elections, that if you're probably a bit sort of, you know, duty, personal responsibility, you look at Andrews and go, well, that's a man who makes hard decisions. That's a man who takes it on the chin. That's the kind of man who doesn't care what his, you know, critics may say about him. He evaluates the right information. And, like, he's really personifying an ideal of leadership that is very Australian- very recognisable. Dean Madigan was saying on Twitter yesterday, look, the politics of this are excellent mm. because it just makes it makes Andrews look like this absolute tower of hard decision-making and a man who's prepared to cop it on the chin and do what other people won't. And it was the same in the pandemic. I mean, I was up in Sydney with my mother who was so freaked out by Gladys Berejiklian's press conferences around the pandemic, as you would be if you were there, quite frankly. It had a somewhat apocalyptically incompetent tone. And my mother made us watch the Andrews press conferences because it made her feel safe because he was willing to make difficult decisions. 
And, and this is the thing, right? People have responded to this. So, you know, you've got Neil Mitchell, who as late as May was calling for the Commonwealth Games to be cancelled, now saying that it's outrageous the Commonwealth Games have been cancelled, has taken to Twitter today to defend his... Uh, backflip. His backflip uh, to say that they should never have been agreed to in the first place. Well... Dan Andrews stepped in when no other leader in the Commonwealth would and said, you know what, we think we've got a way of making this work. Oh, damn you, Justin Trudeau. We think we've got a way of making this work. And it turns out it turns out that the numbers and the environment and everything else changed. And you know what he did? He went, we're not going to do it that way anymore. And, and you're right. That is leadership. Leadership is taking the information that's available at the time looking at what your values are, looking at what you're trying to achieve, and then making decisions based on that information that aligns to those values and aligns to your goals. That's what Dan Andrews does. He does it consistently. That's what he does consistently. And that's why conservatives hate him so much is because they don't want a consistent Labor leader who who looks at the information looks at their values, looks at the goals they're trying to achieve and makes decisions in that framework. They want Labor leaders who go, oh, this is popular, I'll go and run over there. Or this is popular, I'll go and run over there. And I think the fact that every state and territory, including, by the way, the Liberal one down in Tasmania has said, we're not going to do this. The state that we don't talk about, yeah. We're not going to do this, shows that it is a model for leadership that is worth replicating. It's a model of leadership that drives some in the billionaire and corporate-owned media, absolutely crazy. And I want to give the example of Geelong, Van, because Geelong is one of those places that, you know, was going to host some of the sports, you know. Sport mad Geelong. Sport mad Geelong. Now, it's still going to get a whole range of the lasting legacy infrastructure investments. Uh, but the Geelong Advertiser, which, of course, would have put up its rates to advertise during the Commonwealth Games period, as much of the billionaire and corporate-owned media would have, by the way. This is one of the reasons why they love sporting events, because you can usually charge more for them, particularly if you're a host nation, because people will gravitate towards that. That's all you're going to cover. That's what they're going to watch. It's on every channel. It's on every newspaper. They ran a four-page hit piece in the Geelong Advertiser on why Dan Andrews was wrong. They also ran a poll of the people of Geelong about what they thought about cancelling. The advertiser readers of Geelong. That's right. The advertiser readers of Geelong. So not everyone in Geelong, but the people who read the advertiser. And the advertiser readers of Geelong, 66% of them supported Dan Andrews cancelling the Commonwealth Games. When... People complain about mainstream media losing out to streaming services or losing out to podcasts or losing out to, say, The Guardian. Then what they need to understand is why. And the reason why they're losing out is because of things like what's happened in Geelong. You can't run four pages of hit piece against a policy position that your editor doesn't like because maybe you've lost a little bit of extra margin on advertising and it's just so outrageous and we don't like Dan Andrews anyway, when the majority of your readers, not even the population at large, but just your readers support it. Two-thirds of your readers support it. That is mind-boggling. Two-thirds of uh, of an electorate in this country, if we extrapolate that out, that means every single seat in the Senate. Like that is huge. Yeah. So if you got if you got a sixty six percent primary, you win every Senate seat. So it's it's pretty 
In those kind of numbers, that's a, a, what we would call a beautiful set of numbers. Ask me why I'm a labour person. Why are you a labour person? Because I believe in outputs, and outputs are very much a labour value. Labour people are material. We actually look at the infrastructure of things and what is required to get an outcome, right? And if and if there is not going to be an outcome around the Commonwealth Games, that is positive, that adds to the community, that meets the ideological framework the Labor people share of equalisation, of opportunity, of improving people's material experience and particularly targeted towards those who are working people or people who are marginalised economically. If the outputs are not there, it is not justifiable. That is why I'm a Labor person. Hear, hear. Look, it's going to continue to roll on. The... The billionaire and corporate owned media continue to be outraged. They'll continue to be outraged. Uh, this notion that, uh, and and this is a really, uh, this is a really telling one. Somebody, uh, I saw somebody say, uh, well, this just makes us a laughing stock in the eyes of the rest of the world. Are you kidding? And somebody wrote, and somebody responded to that. Imagine how we'll be seen by the rest of the world if we vote no to Indigenous. Uh, recognition and, and the voice. person who said that was traditional centre right conservative Tony Windsor. So you know, like that's what centre right people are supposed to understand. And I think Van, you know, we should talk about the no campaign and we should talk about the referendum. Very hard not to get angry about it. I know it's very hard not to get angry about it because the as is the uh, referendum. Uh, a machinery bill requirement, both the yes uh, case and the no case, uh, gets sent to every household. In a pamphlet. In a pamphlet. It loves pamphlets. Yes. Well, you know, it's they, sometimes they go out of style. I don't know why. Um, you know, the boss's pamphlet continues to extort large amounts of money from the bosses to hear from the bosses about what the bosses want to hear. It's very weird. Well, at least they speak to their readership. They do speak to their they readership. They speak to their readership. Although, so, well the, done, boss's pamphlet. Although the boss's pamphlet did run a ca- cartoon. He's talking about the AFR for anyone who's new to the show, which is referred to in this house exclusively as the boss's pamphlet. The boss's pamphlet did run a cartoon that was both sexist, racist, uh, and just plain creepy, uh, depicting one of their biggest advertisers, uh, one of the biggest bosses in the country, as some kind of um, sick weirdo, which I think, you know, we've covered before. and Went, went down, down like a bag of flaming. Lead balloons. Uh, so, <laughs> look, the point that I want to make here about these pamphlets, uh, not the boss's pamphlet, the pamphlets around the referendum. Pick a pamphlet. Any pamphlet. Is that the pamphlets... Do not have to be true, and this is—I mean, this is this is the truth. The truth is, they do not have to be true. Uh, and the ABC has done some analysis of this. Other people are doing it as well. Um, there's no formal requirement that the arguments put forward in the pamphlet be based strictly on fact. The Electoral Commission has established that the yes and no arguments would be, and I quote published in separate, unedited, and unformatted documents exactly as they have been received. Now, this is, uh, this I think is going to be a real challenge. Last time we had a referendum, I wasn't old enough to vote. Social media wasn't a thing. The idea of disinformation 
was, you know... Um, Something that happened in Soviet countries. Yeah, things being dropped from the sky that you picked up and went, well, that's clearly wrong. Now it's very, very different. These pamphlets are going to arrive at people's houses in amongst all of the noise that's going on on social media, in amongst some of the media, which quite frankly, uh, if anybody has seen the story that happened today where 2GB's Ben Fordham uh, read out part of the No pamphlet in an interview with Anthony Albanese, and Anthony Albanese, the Prime Minister of Australia, called him out on it and said... uh, said we shouldn't be um, chasing red herrings here. And that was his words, red herring. Not to raise, his exact words were uh, that the media has an obligation to, quote, not raise red herrings. This is this is contentious. You know, Dutton and, the, and his rump of ultra-conservatives have decided to make this a contentious referendum. So the no campaign... He's already been called out for misinformation. Oh, it's shocking. So there was an excellent article which I circulated a lot, Josh Butler reported in The Guardian, that, of course, the No campaign is being backed by American disinformation campaigners. We talked about that last week. And that people who, American outfits that do campaign work for megachurches and anti-abortion causes in the United States, mm, not very centre-right, is it? It's a bit extreme. Mm. They've been backing the No They've working on the no campaign and you have the situation where the no campaign is running multiple websites generating internet content that pretends it's making a progressive no case by the way there is no progressive no case over in one direction with pictures of the very helpful Lydia Thorpe Mm -hmm. and then having their hard right uh, disinformation pages featuring luminaries like Pauline Hanson Mm -hmm. and it's all being presented it's from the same campaign group who are pushing these narratives on social media as much as they can to sink the referendum, not in, a, not in the way that democracy is supposed to work, where we make arguments based on values and the population make a decision which values most closely align to theirs, but the No campaign is outright lying. I mean, we see it on, we get the trolls on our pages who are oh, like, right. oh, where's the detail? And it's like Thomas Mayer's literally written a book with Kerry O'Brien Like, Marsha Langton's written infinite essays. Megan Davis is touring the country, like, speaking to anybody. Can I just say on that, too, because the No case, the No pamphlet, has taken quotes from people like Thomas, uh, like uh, Megan Davis, out of context and is using them in in their pamphlet to try and whip up fear uh, and division. Uh, and, in fact, so much so that even a constitutional lawyer has come out, uh, a, a constitutional lawyer by the name of Greg Craven, unfortunate surname, but uh, showed great bravery, I think, to say that he, he has been taken out of context in the no pamphlet. He wants it changed. I don't think he's got any chance of that happening because they've spent millions of dollars printing these things. But he's already come out to say um, that uh, he's absolutely in favour of yes and will be campaigning for it. He said actually today he's so outraged and feels so like essentially robbed of his public position by Peter Dutton that he will be campaigning harder for yes on the basis of this misappropriation that's taken place. I mean, 
it is disgraceful. Peter Dutton wants to be Prime Minister of this country but does not have the courage to actually tell a straight story to the Australian people about his position on The Voice. And that's just disgusting. It's like, do you know you can't actually lie your way out of strife? Didn't we discover this with Scott Morrison and the telling fibs to the French? That, you know, actually the world bears records of what you say and makes decisions accordingly, decisions that become extremely expensive when your lies are exposed. Orcus and Marine deal, case in point. Like, it is absolutely sickening. But Peter Dunn has learnt nothing from Morrisonism. In fact, this pamphlet, full of misattributions and lies, mm. is doubling down on everything Australians found so disgusting about the Morrison era, the secret ministries, you know, the, mm-hmm. oh, well, you should be, like, the nonsense, the myth-making, the, the you know, extremist responses to everything. That's not who Australians are. And it just fundamentally shows a lack of character. Let's compare Daniel Andrews to Peter Dutton this week. Daniel Andrews has to front the international media around an international event going, we're not doing it. It's not responsible. We can't make the numbers work. My responsibility is to Victorians and I will I will cop it. I will take it on the chin, but this is the right decision to make. All right? Yeah. And that's the truth. Let's compare to Peter, Peter Dutton. Actually, like misquoting constitutional scholars who are hardcore pro-yes people to hoodwink Australians into believing that that um, Craven is supporting a no case. Like, oh. that's the character competition on offer in Ospol at the moment. The Prime Minister has the courage to go on radio and deal with somebody like Ben Fordham, who is absolutely not a friend of the Labor Party, let's be clear, (laughs) and to call him out on the fact that Fordham, and Albanese made this point on radio, that Fordham was literally repeating the talking points that had been printed in the No pamphlet. Yeah, and it is outrageous. And this is what we have to deal with, you know. How dare you want to lead this country and lie to people like this? It it is phenomenal. And, of course, we're seeing it again and again. The Yes pamphlet talks very clearly about recognition and respect to 65,000 years of culture, listening to advice, practical progress for Indigenous uh, health, education, employment and housing. The the YES pamphlet is really focused on those practical material outcomes and what it means for the nation as a whole. The NO campaign is looking at these things to create fear, to create senses of shadow. They keep using their message box the word risk. For those of you who haven't trained in PR, like Ben and I, message boxing is where you pick a couple of words that you want to associate with with whatever your the mm. cause is. And in negative campaigning, which is a lot easier than positive campaigning, mm. can we mm. just be blatantly obvious? You can for, for people like Ben and I, we can see the message box that they've done on this. Oh, yeah. They want people to vote no because oh there's not enough detail sowing doubt. Doubts. I've got doubts. I've got doubts. I'm voting no because of doubts. And because of the risk, the risk, the risk, the risk, the risk, the word risk. You can play bingo whenever they talk about it. You will hear it in every statement that Dutton makes. And some of it is bizarre. And it go and it, there's a full spectrum, right? So it's everything from uh the voice will determine interest rates to flight paths. That's flight my paths to Take away your backyards. We've heard that one before, by the way. That was what was going to happen after Marbo, remember? On native title. Oh, yes. Yes. All oh, these, all Can these. you imagine what it'd be like if people from a different culture to yours turned up on your land and just took it? Can you imagine what that would be like? We need to be really, really clear here. Too. I mean, we'd have to have hundreds of years of expensive Commonwealth games to acknowledge it. We've had 
we've had lots of conversation over the last 50, 100 years where people have talked about what some of the potential solutions could be to the dispossession and genocide of our First Nations people. And the long-term impacts of that. And, and, how- there, are, and there are lots of, lots of cherry-picking going on from the No campaign of parts of conversations, of bits of sentences that try to paint certain individuals within the broader movement for yes, which is still representative of the overwhelming majority of the population, as somehow extremist. And that's what they're doing. They're painting individuals as the risk. And let me tell you the greater risk. The greater risk is people like Warren Mundine. The greater risk is people like Pauline Hanson. Can you imagine if Pauline Hanson was Prime Minister of this country? Can you imagine if Peter Dutton became Prime Minister and he did so on the back of Pauline Hanson's influence on the back of someone like Warren Mundine's influence. Imagine the risk that poses to Australia. Imagine the risk that poses to workers in this country, to wages in this country. Imagine the risk that poses to the general economic uh, conditions that we all have to operate under, what it will do to the cost of education, to the cost of healthcare when these things are privatised and spun off and given to mates and friends and buddies, just like they were under Morrisonism. The greater risk here, the greater risk here is not that our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander fellow Australians are recognised in the constitution and that our country goes from being a 200-year-old colony to one of the longest continuous recognised civilizations on earth and that those Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have a voice in advising government about policies that impact them. There's no risk in that. There's no risk in that. The risk here is that extremists, extremists dominate the national discussion for the next three, four, five months, and they spin that into a political movement. Now, I don't think that will happen. I think Australians have enough common sense to see that fear those those message box tested ideas for what they are. But it's good to see Albo go toe-to-toe with Ben Fordham because we need all of us to get off the bench on this. We cannot just leave this to the quote-unquote yes campaign. It's got to be all of us. And I want to say this to well-meaning white Australians, of whom there are many. Yes. There are a lot of well-meaning white people who want to do the moral thing but are in information communities that in which Black Australia, the voice of Black Australia, is dominated by the likes of Lydia Thorpe. Mm-hmm. And Lydia Thorpe is not representative of Black Australia, not on, not on any level. She wasn't put into parliament by Black Australian vote. She was put into parliament by the Greens, a political party she has since left, and she will not be contesting the next, next election. And if you can't work out why, it's because, can I be clear, she has no hope of getting elected without the Greens brand. She has absolutely not. She's not representative. She walked out of the Uluru Statement. There were 250 representatives at that Congress mm. and she was one of seven people who worked who walked out. But that is a tiny percentage yeah. of any, on any democratic level, right, if you are in one of those information environments where you're being told a progressive no is an actual thing, you're actually in an extremist environment. Because let me tell you something, like 
the overwhelming majority of Indigenous Australians are campaigning for yes, right? The convention that took place, the Congress mm. that took place, mm. that determined this whole process. By the way, the no campaign says there has been no convention and there's always a convention. A, there's not always a convention. It's only happened two or three times. And B, there was a convention. There was the Uluru Statement from the Heart. Overwhelmingly in support through an exhausting, exhausting negotiation process involving stakeholders and communities, representatives of communities, thousands of people travelling across the country, having conversations, facilitating dialogue, getting this Congress together. It was a representative of those very diverse communities. Australia is a continent that contains within it more cultural groupings than Europe, like hundreds Mm, of languages mm, mm. that were spoken here, hundreds of different cultures. This has been one of the issues, coordinating, you know, a representative Black Australia voice Mm. requires coordination and working with government. That's why we are campaigning for a voice to exist. But this idea that a minority of Black Australia is somehow a more legitimate position, that an overwhelming democratic sentiment is is disinformation. It is. It is disinformation. And it and it feeds uh, it feeds the narrative of the no campaign uh, and it feeds, quite frankly, uh, people like Pauline Hanson. You know, there is a there, the picture of Pauline Hanson with Senator Jacinta Price and Warren Mundine is, in my view, one of the most stark images uh, for uh, Australians to consider in this referendum. Those three people standing together tells you what you need to know. That, that is a minor minority party that speaks to an extremist set of views. That is a, a man who has jumped from party to party, from issue to issue, in a desperate attempt to maintain the spotlight on himself for well over two decades. And a senator who has been effectively disowned by the community that she has come from, despite claiming to speak on behalf of not just the Indigenous community in the Northern Territory, but Indigenous people everywhere. That is that is the No campaign summed up. And if you think that the 80-plus percent of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who support the voice should be ignored in favour of those three people, then, friend, you're not a progressive, you're not left-wing, you, quite frankly, are sucking down some misinformation and hopefully listening to this podcast you'll change your mind if not you probably won't listen to another episode yeah true <laughs> i mean i just want i just really want to put this on the table for progressive no people i want because it's not a thing like you're not being progressive if you are voting the same way all of the racists are not all the people voting no are racist, but all the racists are voting no. Correct. What do you think the the outcome is going to be? Do you genuinely think that if the cause alo- that the racists are aligned to prevails and the voice goes down, do you really think everyone's going to turn around and go, "Oh yeah, well obviously now's the time to pursue a treaty movement"? If a, if a compelling majority that sinks the referendum is at no, do you really think black sovereignty is on the table? Well, it's not. It, cl- it clearly isn't. And and we have to be really honest with ourselves about that, that that is, we've said it before, referendums are a binary choice. You either vote yes and you support recognition and a voice and 
And maybe you support what comes after that. Maybe you don't. But it's a binary choice for right now is that you either support recognition and a voice or you don't. And if you don't, let me tell you, what comes after you don't? Because the no campaign is not putting on the table these are the steps that we will follow instead. There's no sense of how they will close the gap. Dan Andrews has said this. Anthony Albanese has said this. Linda Burney has said this. What we're doing now isn't working to close the gap for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. Amy Albanese actually told Ben Fordham it was dumb to expect that you could keep doing, keep making the same mistakes and expect the outcomes to be any different. Speaking of making the same mistakes and expecting the outcomes to be any different, Van, I want to change gears a little bit because... Because uh, I'm so angry. Well, you are so because angry. Because I, I am seeing the racism directed towards activists from the black community who, like, and it is foul, yeah. and it's outraged me because people like Thomas Mayo, like, are heroes of their community. Yeah. You know, and not just of the black Australian community, but he's a hero of the trade union movement as well. But yeah. like, this is a person who understands the power of solidarity and that intersectionalism means caring about more than one thing at the same time and to see people for whom I have nothing but respect as citizens, as activists, as representatives, as community leaders be subjected to just the hateful nonsense of stupid bigots makes me sick. I I think most of our listeners will agree with you on that one. Ben, the, the issue I want to move to is around public schools and it's around public education. Is this going to make me calm down? Probably not. <laughs> because, well, you know, because you, the masthead that you write for, The Guardian, is running a series at the moment called uh, What Happened to Gonski, right? So I think it's I think it's an important topic to talk about. Uh, Jason Clare today gave an address at the National Press Club. It was mostly focused on higher education, to be fair. Uh, that seems to be where his focus has been. But, you know... Public school, there has been lots of articles in The Guardian recently about public schools. And I've certainly tweeted about it. I know, uh, you know, we participated in the hashtag proud to be public. I'm so proud education to be public. Day. It radiates from me like a force field. I constantly have to atone for the sins of having gone to a private school. I went because I could kick around ball and can it closed my public school. Like there's, there's reasons and rationales there. You don't need to apologise to me. Just apologise to future generations of Australians. And we will do that by making sure that they get proper funded public schools. One of the things that I think people have assumed is that because for a decade of Morrisonism, uh, the lie was told that uh, public schools were getting record levels of funding, record levels of funding, record levels of funding, people I think assumed that the Gonski reforms were implemented, right? And the Gonski reforms, just to remind people, the base idea is that schools and students are funded based on need, that there is a formula, complex formula that's devised, that's agreed upon, that funds based on need. Sounds pretty Australian to me. Sounds like it aligns pretty closely to the Australian values that we all hold. And so you can imagine a situation where people in the centre-right go, yeah, okay, let's fund schools based on need. Let's do that. Let's have that system. So when we had a decade of uh, liberal national coalition and they told the lie repeatedly that there was record levels of funding, record levels of funding, I think a lot of us assumed that that meant funding was going to where it was needed, 
Yeah, not any of us who have friends who are state school teachers who have been asked to perform more and more miracles with less and less money. And that's exactly what's happened because now 98% of public schools are not funded to their minimum level required. 98%. Now, that to put that into context, if I said to you 98% of our hospitals didn't have the minimum level of funds they need to operate, you would think that that was a national crisis. If I was to say to you 98% of our military bases didn't have the funds they need in order to operate effectively, people would call that a national crisis. Well, 98% of our public schools do not have what they need to deliver the education that our kids require based on an agreed set of criteria. This is not something that has been sort of plucked out of the air. This is not a ministerial, oh, let's have a good announcement and open another rec room or another, you know, if it was a private school, another rowing tank or whatever it is. Oh, my God, that rowing tank. But we have to be really, really clear about this, right, because this is across the country, right? It and, and and what's really quite, I think, it is a bit sickening, right? Because the inverse is true for private schools. 98% of private schools are funded at or above the minimum standard. So literally, literally now we have a situation where public money is going to private institutions, some of which do some good work, some of which, you know, and I get, I think Elbow went to a, a low-fee Catholic school back in the day and, you know, all that sort of stuff. I get that there are some of those out there. To be fair, Catholics were subjected to, like, social harassment. Right. They didn't build state schools where there were Catholics because the idea was that they could educate themselves. But that's a very long time ago. And so there are some historical anomalies in, in all of that, right? But 98% of public schools are not funded to the minimum standard. Like, it just blows my mind. Why am I so angry? Because it's so unfair. It's so unjust. And Why am I, as a proud graduate of state school, so angry? Because it's wrong. Yeah, it's wrong. It's absolutely wrong because it's the way that funding is allocated as well. And Ben went to a private school. He had a reunion recently. And I want to say this is not recently. Well, before the pandemic, but, you know, time is meaningless now. And I just want to be very clear when I say, like, Ben is obviously great and I married him and his education was part of the person who he is. His friends are the nicest people I've ever met in my life and they have become very dear to me, right? And that's you're not morally impaired by going to a private school. You are poorly socialised because I always find it very funny when people who went to private school go, oh, yeah, well, there were a couple of poor kids at my school and there were a couple of working-class kids at my school as well. And I'm always like, yeah, but not really on a proportional level with the population, were they? Because I have a feeling you probably encountered a higher proportion of middle and ruling class people than I did because you were in an enclave, and that's not healthy. Mm. And you're very adjusted. Your friends are very adjusted. A lot of people who went to private school are very adjusted. But there are some people who have the private school experience who think that the whole world is going to be like that, and they get very resentful when they're out of it and 
no one is pumping the sunshine in their direction anymore. Some of the social problems we're having at the moment, particularly in the cooker community, come from people who have a sense of entitlement and social privilege that is not actually backed up by reality or where they sit in the social mix. And I think we have to be really honest about that. We have to be honest about what people are paying for as well because we know, because all the studies have been done mm. that the single largest indicator of your educational outcome is like your economic opportunity mm. and the mm. kind of household you grow up in. And if you grow up in a household that encourages education and reading, it doesn't matter what school you go to. Mm. It doesn't matter if you go to St. Poshos on like Billionaire Hill or if you go to Tough Times High at the back of the swamp, mm. you will, you're essentially destined to an education outcome based on parental encouragement around reading and stability and things like that. If you are from a disastrous home, you are probably going to have a disastrous education because that's the reality of being a child. And I want to make it, I want to be very clear about what people are paying for and this ridiculous Rube Goldberg machine of funding in this country where you have private schools competing, against, not against public schools, but against other private schools for students and mm. the money that is brought in by private students. And the way they do this is by spending enormous amounts of money on, frankly, ridiculous garbage that has nothing to do with educational outcomes. Mm. No high school in Australia needs an archery field. Archery is a lovely sport and, you know, good on you all archers. But given the fact we're not a Scythian culture who are invading from horseback with the mounted artillery we can afford, archery is not really necessary for, you know, like competent engagement in Australian society and production. That's not really what we're doing. Long live the longbowmen. Nobody needs, like, high schools don't really need their own swimming pools they certainly don't need a rowing tank like your former high school Ben which was yeah. bragged to us on the tour that was superior to the one they had at the Australian Institute of Sport no one needs that rowing tank that rowing tank is completely irrelevant to educational outcomes so is the ridiculous gym the ridiculous theatre that had more sophisticated equipment than any of the professional theatres I have worked in in my adult life it certainly didn't need the art gallery that looked better than any art gallery I've ever been to, or the tutorial room modelled on Stanford, which was not actually Stanford. Like, it's a simulacrum of privilege and experience for, like, a Legoland for high school students who don't appreciate what those things are because they have no experience of living without them or what it means to attain them. Meanwhile, state schools work miracles. Kids from really deprived backgrounds, kids from ordinary backgrounds, kids, they can't, public schools cannot turn anybody away and they can't just impose barrier to keep people out by imposing cost and only pick the, the kids who, the poor kids who are, for example, in your case, good at sport. And I just want to make a very, very clear spoiler alert here to everybody. If private schools could magically imbue children with talents they didn't have before going there, there'd be no such thing as scholarships. Not academic scholarships, not music ones, not choral ones, not sport ones, not anything else. That's kind of a dead giveaway of an admission that I can't really work miracles. But campaigning against one another for that rich, lovely, dirty private Luca in order to get those students and those powerful families to go means that the taxpayer, i.e. me, who has no children, who contributes tax to the idea of education as a public good, there is 
no public good represented by private institutions. My taxpayers' money is going towards St Poshos and St Privileges uh, competing against one another for who has the best helipad. And there are private schools in this country who take taxpayers' money and have helipads. Meanwhile, our friends at the state school like where there are not these ludicrous facilities, there are no tutorial rooms that look like the ones at Stanford mm-hmm. at Port Hacking High School, Miranda, my beloved high school. What there are are teachers who are absolutely dedicated to teaching and a socialisation experience that actually makes children self-reliant and resilient and tolerant and empathetic and aware of the fact they live in a society where people are different and cultures are different and people are complicated. And what those schools need are teachers and, and staff. And and then the point I want to make on that is that teaching is a mission-based vocation. And I think for too long in this country, we have taken that for granted. We have assumed, and I, and I know, I've heard, I've seen it on social media, we've heard it on Talkback Radio, oh, teachers get all these holidays, all the rest of it. That's, that's just <laughs> not true. It's not real. <laughs> teachers, these are, these are real numbers. These are real numbers. So Monash University did a study and found that only 13% of teachers in public schools had a manageable workload. That's down from 24.4% in 2019. Uh, the key changes to workload uh, were the size of the class, uh, the amount of red tape they have to do now, uh, the amount of time they're actually able to spend with individual students, uh, the complexity of the issues that students have in their classroom. So not enough staff, too much red tape, uh, and and huge complexity. Administrative burden. Yeah, that's the red tape. They get co- you know. We expect now teachers to do all this data gathering. We expect there to be ranking tables and we expect and the reality is teachers are there to teach. That's what they want to do. You know, you're seeing teachers leave the profession in numbers never before seen. And part of it is, quite frankly, that the average number of hours for a full-time teacher is 537 a week, 53.7 hours a week. That's 141% of the standard working week. You know, that that is just mind-boggling. You know, it's 15 hours more than what is considered the full-time, uh, the average full-time uh, workload. Teachers are driven by desire to help our kids get the education they deserve. And quite frankly, the idea that, we would have governments cheap out on our kids, cheap out on teachers because, oh, it's a bit hard or, oh, we, you know. We're worried about backlash from swing voters who send their kids to private schools. The private schools have very comprehensive lobbying lists of all the potential swing voters who live in marginal seats whose kids go to the school. I mean, let's be really honest. And I want to be clear here, right? There is a way to do this that, is based on need, right? And that's the point. It's supposed to be based on need. And when 98% of private schools are funded at or above the level they need, in some cases, they're funded as much as 140 to 150% more. Like that, that is huge amounts more than they need, right? Because of sweetheart deals done by Morrison and done in the past and allowed to flow on. We have public schools where 45% of teachers 
are intending to leave the profession. They're going to they're gonna leave. One in five beginning teachers are already leaving in the first three years of being a teacher. And this is despite the exhausting qualification process that's obliged of teachers. They, they are So you have trained. people who are absolutely motivated, vocationally motivated, the most precious substance in the universe, a vocational calling to serve a community, and that's why people become state school teachers. That's what drives them through. And the idea that you would go through the rigorous process of your own education to become a teacher and then be so broken and dispirited by a system that is not funded at an adequate level, a basic level just to support you to do your job properly, that is a national disgrace. And that's on the heads of everyone. And the idea that state schools are not turning around and going, we demand an equal number of helipads, we want all the rowing tanks. You know, state schools just need teachers because actually that's what kids need. And look, um, and, and I want to say this, it's public schools, right? <sighs> They're public schools because I think sometimes people go, oh, well, the you know, it's a state responsibility. And it's not just a state responsibility. Quite frankly, it's a national uh, imperative. It is so important. The best thing we can do is invest in public education. Jason Clare's speech at the National Press Club today was good. I've seen some of the highlights of it. He talks about particularly, as I said, university, TAFE, how to get people into higher and further education. Those are important things. But we have to start at the basic fundamentals, early childhood education, primary and secondary. And when 98% of public schools are not funded to the minimum standard, 98% are not funded to the minimum standard, the fundamentals are not in place. To see that pipeline of people going into TAFE, going into university, going on to do PhDs, create new research, build more efficient machinery, create a more productive society, create the next masterpiece. We've got to get the fundamentals right. And, you know, it's good that, you know, Jason Clare has said the Albanese government is committed to working with state and territory governments to get every school to 100% of its fair funding level. He said that on the 16th of December in uh, 2022. So if you missed it, it's probably because he said it just before Christmas and not a lot of people are following the news. But I want to be really clear that this podcast, and I think in this household, we support the Australian Education Union's position, which is that The Commonwealth has to ensure that all public schools get to their minimum level of funding by no later than 2028. Like fundamentally, if we can't get this right in the next five years, when there are wall-to-wall Labor governments on mainland Australia and at a Commonwealth level, then it's never going to get done properly because we've had a decade of Morrisonism. We had Gonski. We had the agreement. We're all gonna, we all agree, needs-based funding. Well, a decade of Morrisonism showed they never really believed it. They never were really going to do it. They didn't do it. What they did instead was increase the gap in funding between private schools and public schools. They did sweetheart deals. They overfunded a whole bunch of cherry-picked institutions at the expense of the 98% of public schools, keeping in mind the vast majority of Australians send their children to public schools at both primary and secondary level. And these schools are delivering. As you said, Van, the research is really clear. Public schooling 
is phenomenally successful, phenomenally successful. I mean, you consider what they're doing without the minimum resources. You know, and the the gratitude shown to teachers is exploitation and that is it's it turns my stomach. It absolutely turns my stomach. The idea that you can have the most noble motivation to serve your community and that gets exploited. Like nobody goes into teaching to be a millionaire. You go into teaching to teach children and to give them opportunities in life. And the idea that you have to pay a personal price for that of exhaustion is through your exploitation at work is just sickening. And I want to, there's one more frame I just that's always on my mind in discussions around, you know, private schools. And if you make the decision to send your children to private school, that's on you. But can I just say, don't say things like, oh, well, my parents worked really hard to send me to private school. I don't think people understand just how insulting that is because you're implying that the majority of us who went to public school had parents who were lazy shirkers who didn't love them. And quite frankly, I think my education benefited enormously from the fact that rather than get second jobs, my parents spent a lot of time with me talking to me about books, taking me to museums, watching sport with me, and I think I've gained from that educationally. So can we please stop creating this false paradigm that private school exists for the hard workers and the rest of us are, you know, it is, unloved losers? It is absolutely a false paradigm and and we need to focus uh, on what's needed and what's needed is to fund our public schools based on the needs of those schools, based on the needs of those students, so that every child gets the education they need to participate in our society and and have the future that they want. Fundamentally, that's what it's got to be about. Van, look. You're going to talk about plastic? Yeah, very, very quickly. That's going to cheer me up. Very, very quickly. Because poor old Ben, he's doing his best. You can see I've got the rage cloud. So very, very quickly, the Australian Government's Recycling Modernisation Fund, the RMF, uh, has a plastics technology stream. It's going to boost existing recycling infrastructure, uncover new methods of processing plastics. Businesses can apply for grants between a million and $20 million. The focus is on hard-to-recycle plastics like shopping bags, bread bags, cling wrap. I mean, I can barely get cling wrap to unfurl properly. So how are they going to recycle that? I don't know. I'm clearly not going to. It's like a bear trying to program a computer. Yeah. Look, the environment ministers met in June to confirm uh, that they wanted to transition the country towards a more circular economy. This is something our good friend Terry Butler has uh, talked about before. Circular economy, reusing things properly. Commonwealth Environment Minister Tanya Plibersek has uh, absolutely reiterated uh, the Commonwealth's commitment on this. Uh, these are some staggering numbers. Australians use about 3.8 million tonnes of plastic a year and dispose of 2.7 million tonnes. That's 50 times the weight of the Sydney Harbour Bridge being thrown out every year. Mm. We're only recycling 13% of it. As Tanya Plibersek says, we can do better. Commonwealth's investing $60 million to boost recycling and recovery rates for hard-to-recycle plastics. And that's fan- I think that's phenomenally good news. It also shows that we know, we know if you want to solve a problem, you got to invest in it, you got to put the money in it, you got to fund it properly. So, you and you got to regulate it. You got to regulate it properly. And that's what they're doing when it comes to plastics. It's good news. They're going to get it done. They're going to get it done properly. Now, of course, our show 
is always free to listen to, always free to download, but of course, it's not free to produce. <laughs> and the funding for it comes from our pockets. The therapy sessions alone. <laughs> and the pockets of those people who do make a voluntary contribution. Which we do not spend on the therapy. No, the, all of that money goes into growing the audience, getting the message to more and more people. And it's why we continue to be a top 20 podcast, despite the fact that this is literally just me and Van with Germanicus and a microphone every week. We are competing against some global uh, behemoths who are in this space. But you know what? We are competitive with them because of our supporters, people who give once off, people who give a buck a week, people who are extend the reach, who contribute 10 bucks a month, and our cadre who chip in 20 bucks a month. You have made this podcast such a success. And of course, Van is now going to give a shout out to everyone who is our, in you our ready? cadre. You ready? And everyone who is you in ready? Extend you ready? the reach. You ready? Let's do it. Shamila LaCalde, Ms. Deanne Weir, Joe Lockery, Steph, Karina Bali, Jane C. Campbell, Leona Gibbons, Anne Common, Ross Kenner, 888, Bronwyn Cockington, Terry Butler, Jack Powell, Gail Ferguson, Rebecca Lefangening, Falongman, Matthew Hadley, Colin Kelly, Ali Vance, Miriam, Love Your Work, Yeti, Yeti, Andy Valden, Claire, Jason Dallas, Miller, Kivir Burris, Gabe Kramer, Stephen Aitken, Trish Corey, Greg Miller, Kathy Birch, Fiona Mitchell, Jed Carney, Christine Cole, Bronman, Punch Drunk Veteran, Jenny Forster 7, Andrew Pascoe, Cassandra Tui, Ian Hampson, no Twitter for me, Hannah Honda, Matt Bush, no relation, Richard Sands, not on Twitter, Glenn Robbie, Bresh Daniels, Kylie Phillips, Linda Cartwright, Leanne Shingles, I don't have Twitter, my name is Susan Myers, at Kerry Nash 20, Billy 3 McCabe, Nurse Simon, at Katagal, Lauren Ashen Banjo, Naranga Man, John Sharpen, Peter Bath, Louise Watson, slash Red, White and Blue Lou, and our extended reach supporters are Stuart Munn, Blagoya, Matthew Case, Marky Mark, Vic and Bit, Adrian Valente, uh, Mazritza at Carradale 68, Frank Newhouse, Erica Pizzuti, Joe Lupino, Rachel Fitzpatrick, Kerry Arthur, Pauline Bates, Shane Horsville, Helen, Murray Buzzard 62, Janet McCallman, Jeremy Mayle, Rosie Elliott, Lara at Robert Phil, at, at Robert Not Phil 1, Michael Hale, Sandra Kelly, Darina, Donald Vaughan, Damien Marley, Michelle Norton, Rodney Slap, Cameron Tri Dragon, Daniel at Crazy Keza, John DeHaan at Ange Fennel, Anna Uren, Melanie Denning, Jody A, Penelope Judge, Jane Holloway, Spirit of Anger and Hope, S Wood, at Didham, Sharon Kelly, Beck and Lola, Richard Graver, Someone, Vita W, Nadina Hannah, Maurice, Mario Louise Orca, Megan Weckett, Graham, Oxley, Tracy Lucas, Sandy Honan, at Galvez, Greg Martin, Trainer, Amy Fawcett, not on Twitter, Sarah, Eliana and Andrew. Ivor Spillett, Andrew Bryan, Peter O.C., Linda Sam, Hadid, Kip Patterson, Lizette, Little Bunker, Basher, Katie Ward, at The Real Never Longbody, Sandy Baumgart, at Not Sandy B, Renee McGee, of Words Are Spinning, My World Is An Ocean. Congratulations to all of you for helping make this such a successful podcast and keeping us on the air for nearly three years. This is mad. I know, I know. We're like two months short of three years. It's been so many episodes with closing in on that million download mark. Look, if you are in Noosa this Saturday... Come see us. Come see us. Don't forget, if you've got questions about things, you can email them to us at theweekonwednesday at gmail.com. And every now and again, I will try and answer as many of them as I can on our weekend wraps on a Sunday. But until... Next Wednesday, when Van and I will be with you again. Love you, Vanny. Oh, I love you too. You're the best. Bye. Bye.